Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. morning and welcome to Cornerstone, everybody. How are we doing today? Okay, that's not good enough. Everybody good? Everybody good? We doing good? All right. Hey, it's so great to be with you today. We've been taking the summer, as Christian said, studying this vast topic of leadership. There's so much material out there in leadership and in universities at the bookstores, and yet we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about this. Specifically, we've been studying some of our biblical heroes, and what we found is that these ancient leaders have a ton to teach us in our own sort of just everyday lives here in the East Bay in 2018. For, for example, Nehemiah, we've been studying Nehemiah. He lived 2,500-ish years ago, and we've been drawing all kinds of parallels and bridges of contact and pulling out just great nuggets of wisdom that we can apply to our workplaces, to, in our family life. You know, I was talking about uh, this last week at the Brentwood campus, and uh, one of the police officers who attends, he came up to me afterwards, and he asked to, to have my notes. And I was like, sure, you can have my notes. And I said, why do you want my notes? And he's like, well, I'm giving a training in my precinct to a bunch of new officers, and some of the principles that you're teaching would be completely applicable in our context in, in, at the police force, and I would love to pass along some of these things. And I was like, man, that's high praise. That's super high praise. And I'm hoping and praying all along that your journey's been similar, right, so that you can really apply this and be, uh, have the Bible be practical and, and really um, and help in a contemporary fashion. Okay. So Nehemiah, right? Christian mentioned, we've been studying Nehemiah. Who was he? He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And that meant he was employee number two in this vast empire. And he had a great job. God was like, he had risen to a, a pretty high level. And yet the Lord reassigned Nehemiah to a very difficult task. And that was to rebuild the ancient walls and gates who had been broken down in the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and this project, when it was completed, as we've seen, it allowed Israel to not only be protected and kind of have a national identity again, but really the, the main goal was that the people got restored to their God and their worship flowed once again and the temple was filled with the sacrifices and the praises of the people and really the relationship between God and Israel, his people was made right again. So that's what, uh, what we've learned. 
But in addition to being a construction whiz, a man after my own heart, you know, being a, my, my background is in civil engineering, which is kind of a low-level nerd kind of study. Uh, Nehemiah was a construction whiz, but he also, he also, guys, he instituted and led a bunch of spiritual and governmental reforms that were key to the flow of the narrative. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to Nehemiah chapter 13. That's where we're going to camp out there today. And uh, we're going to see that in our last session that Nehemiah's got some more to teach us. Now, to just bring you up to speed at this point in the timeline, the commentators tell us that after the wall was completed, Nehemiah actually made the trip back to the Persian capital of Susa to uh, resume his role as cupbearer. And we think he was there for about 10 to 12 years. So it's kind of an extended period of time. But then here we see he comes back to Jerusalem because he catches wind of some pretty crazy stuff that had been developing in his absence. So let's go ahead and start in verse four and we'll read about this specifically. Here's what it says. It says that Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. So he was in charge of the storerooms of the temple. And Eliashib was closely associated with Tobiah. Hmm, remember Tobiah? Anybody listening? We good? You guys? Okay. All right. Tobiah is in the picture again. And Eliashib provided Tobiah with a large room that was formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles and also the tithes of grain and wine and olive oil prescribed for, for the workers of the temple, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Now, sometime later, presumably after Nehemiah had heard about all this, he asked his permission, the king, to come back to Jerusalem. And here I learned firsthand about the evil thing that Eliashib, the priest, had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And I gave orders to purify those rooms. And then I put back into those rooms the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. All right, so this is a shocking development, especially if you've tracked along with us. Because you've noticed, again, this guy Tobiah, he pops up again. The priest and Tobiah are buddies. And the shocking thing here is, is that Tobiah is the same guy we read about who is the enemy of God who sought to do whatever he could to hinder God's people in every single way. So Tobiah was part of the faction that mocked Nehemiah when Nehemiah first came in. He threatened Nehemiah. He tried to distract Nehemiah and pull him away from the wall project. Tobiah and his friends falsely accused Nehemiah. They threatened Nehemiah. They threatened God's people with death. Tobiah, guys, he opposed the wall project at every turn. And somehow, and somehow, this little weasel, okay, he's a worm. He's a weasel. He's a weed, okay? He worms his way into the good graces of this priest. It says that they're close associates. And if that weren't bad enough... He somehow convinces this lower level priest to convert part of the holy temple into an apartment for he and his family. Now, Tobiah isn't Jewish, nor had he converted into Judaism, which means that he worships pagan gods, and it also means that this guy was not supposed to be here because this was holy ground. 
This was holy ground, and yet he's got a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath luxury suite in the most precious square foot footage in all of Israel. This is like he's got a, a, a five-bedroom, four-bath starter home in San Ramon worth two million, and he's living right in the middle of all the action. That ain't right. That ain't right. Is that right? That's not right. This was egregious desecration. This was high-level like in your face, God. The temple was being defiled. And I can imagine Nehemiah comes into town and he's just like, he just kind of sees this train wreck unfolding. He's just like, what, what in the world's going on here? How did this happen? Who did this? Who allowed this? And he's trying to figure this out because it's just so like not, like this is not normal. So that's, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But the good news here is that our hero, once again, shows us what effective leadership does in situations like these. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah cleans house. He just cleans house, literally. He orders Tobiah removed. I love what it says. It literally says in the Hebrew, I threw out all of Tobiah's junk. His nasty cat-haired, coffee-stained couch, all his hoarder junk and his beer can, everything was out on the street. He just evicts him. And it says that Nehemiah purifies the rooms. Now, the word purify is a, is a beautiful word in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a word that comes up a lot in the ceremonial worship processes of Israel. And it literally means in Hebrew, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means to wash with water. Sort of to, to wash with water. And so, so to purify this apartment, this storage room that had gotten converted into Tobias' house. It's like the, the priests came in and literally washed everything with water. They scrubbed it out. And then it says, again, um, the, the word purify, it, it also means to, to purify with hyssop. Uh, so hyssop was a plant that's native to the, the Middle East. Here's what it looks like. It's beautiful. It kind of looks like lavender, but it's not lavender. And it smells really good. In fact, when you go on one of our Israel trips, I hope you do get to go to one of those, you can, you can buy little essential bottles of oils of, of hyssop and kind of take it home as a souvenir. It smells really good. And hyssop was a part of the ceremonial purification process because it's kind of a metaphor. It means that you're getting rid of the, the, the smell of sin and unrighteousness and you're replacing it with the beautiful smell and the purity that God brings when he gives you forgiveness and this fresh start. King David writes in Psalm 51, it says, purge me with hyssop, O Lord, and I shall be clean. So Nehemiah is just clean in the house. I mean, he's just really going through um, what it means to, to take what was just, it shouldn't have been that way and to make it right. This, this guy's is such good leadership. This is very high-level good leadership. And so what I want to do is just put this into, kind of step back, put this into leadership language that we've been using. So let's say it this way. Effective leaders see the issues and then deal with them. This is a quality, by the way, that is greatly needed today. Too often, when problems arise in our leadership context, wherever that may be, People choose to turn the other way, hoping that the problems will somehow magically fix themselves. Is this true, yes or no? It's just straight up true. If you did not say yes, you are, you are, are you paying attention? Are you a zombie? Are you breathing? Do you know what's going on? All right, this is totally what happens today. 
Great leaders, though, effective leaders, have a willingness to take on these problems and then do something about it. Even if you're not sure what to do, even if you're not sure the complexity of this, like, I, I, don't, I have to study this a little bit, I have to figure this out and dig in here, but they're going to just do that. Effective leaders are going to make it happen. Nehemiah has this quality. Nehemiah exhibits this beautifully. He calls a spade a spade. We just read it, right? Back in the, I don't know, one of the verses here, it straight up says that the, the priest, what he had done was evil. So he doesn't ignore the evil. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. He doesn't justify the compromise and he doesn't listen to the sort of the endless foolish explanations about how the leaders made this happen, right? He, he just saw it was wrong and he came in and he just fumigates. So what, it is, what is it about us, me and you, if we're just straight up honest, that we ignore problems hoping they'll solve themselves. It's kind of like you hear that rattle in the car and rather than go fix it, you just turn the radio up, pretend like it didn't hear it and it's not there, right? I didn't hear it, I'm not listening. We, we do this. It's just a matter of to the degree that we do this, but we all do this. So I was kind of thinking about like, okay, how does this happen in our lives? And here's just a couple of things. Pro- calling them problem avoidance techniques. Uh, excuse me, problem avoidance techniques. That's harder to say than it, than it maybe it appears at first glance. Okay, first of all, we just get too busy to solve the problem. Oh, I'm just, ah, my schedule's just, you know, maybe we can push that to next week. We can problem solve that. We kind of say that language, we're just too busy. Or we just don't want to talk about it. This is a classic change the subject. You know, you bring, bring up an issue, you bring up something that's going on at home, maybe your spouse, and then really when the husbands want to talk about are the, the, the fact that the Oakland A's are 21 games above 500, which is way better than the Giants, by the way. And Moneyball works, and that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about Moneyball. We want to talk about the payroll of the Giants versus the payroll of the, of the A's and how much more efficient they are. In fact, maybe we should make a church model based on the, how the Oakland A's. Let's, let's just get into that, right? No, it's a diversion. You're just changing the subject. I just did a good job of that, illustrating it. Also, we medicate. We medicate when problems arise. We, we just drink alcohol. We, we go to the movies. We turn on Netflix. We just do whatever it is that, that medicates the, the issues and the pain. Or we just lower our standards. Just, yeah, okay, well, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. So it is what it is. And so I'm just going to live with this lower level version of my life. Or we just respond passively. Uh, passive-aggressively, which basically means you acknowledge that there's a problem with someone, and then you just say, okay, yeah, no, no, we'll take care of it, and then you go burn the person's house down, and that's not what we should do. I have a friend who discovered termites. The termites had nested under the house, and they were eating the floor from underneath the subfloor, so you couldn't see it. And so I was like, I want to see that. And so we crawled underneath this house in the crawl space, and we saw, man, it was like a party in there. The termites, you could hear the, the music. They were doing dancing and cocktails, and, man, they were just loving life. And it was very impressive, and it was bad. But my buddy just, like, didn't want to see that, and so he ignored it. He's like, I, I don't know. I'll just deal with this later. He used these, these techniques. And, and you know what? Here was the shocking thing. The termites did not go away. Eventually, he had to fumigate, and the termites got evicted. But the problem was the price of the fix was costlier because he didn't want to face the problem. Oh, Billy, that's good preaching. Oh, my goodness. So so my daddy taught me when nobody compliments you to just compliment yourself. So that's what I just did there. (laughs) 
So Tobiah, okay, so Tobiah is a real person in history, but he also stands kind of as this archetype. He's like a metaphor for all of the times that we allow things to kind of creep into our life that shouldn't be there. Uh, areas of our life at work, at home, in our relationships, our money. Take situations where you have influence. That's what leadership is, influence. Maybe at work, you have some influence at work. And you see the issues at work, don't you? There's coworkers that are perpetually underperformers. And you just kind of wonder, like, well, why does that happen? Why is that allowed to happen? Or there's workers that clash with company culture, or there's employees who come in late and leave early. There's people who take credit for your work. There's people who are like uh, the boss's favorites, and, uh, and they leverage that favoritism. You know, there's all sorts of these issues at work, these Tobias that pop in, and many people just ignore that stuff, and it just hurts. It's like the guy who delays the termite fumigation, it just, it just makes things, they get embedded, they, they, they just kind of propagate, and, the, and it costs the organization, it hurts the organization, it hurts the employees, it hurts the bosses, it hurts the spouses of the employees, because it costs uh, in the emotional realm, and so, and so we, we need effective leaders, we need effective leadership dealing with the problems that we see, and will you be that leader? Someone said yes. Thank you so much. You get a free donut outside. You get a whole box of free donuts, actually. Take them home uh, and spread them around. Okay, so when it came, though, to personnel issues, Nehemiah, he had them. The priests goofed up, didn't they? Big time. Now this, by the way, Eliashib is not the same Eliashib earlier in the book who's the high priest. It just happens to have the same name. A high priest would not be in, in charge of on the org chart of the storage rooms of the temple. That would have been several uh, boxes down. And so don't confuse that in case you kind of are like, wow, that's a major fault. Well, he's a lower level guy. So note though what Nehemiah does. We didn't read this. Look at verse 13. We'll put it on the screen. So Nehemiah basically just changes them out. He says, well, I, I just put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah now in charge of the storerooms. At the, at the beginning of the chapter, it was, who it was? It was Eliashib was in star, charge of the storerooms. And now it's these guys. And then they have an assistant. And then why? Why do you do that? Because these new guys were considered trustworthy. And so there was a personnel issue, and Nehemiah removes the people who were not a fit and puts others in charge who would not compromise. Staffing calls are tough calls to make. Personnel calls are tough calls to make. If you're a manager at work, if you are a, an influential person in charge of environments where, where staffing and personnel are part of your, the purview of your leadership, this is difficult. But Nehemiah handles it with skill and grace. And so what I want to do is, is take it out of the, the specifics and let's, let's just talk about tough calls in general, leadership and tough calls. And the teaching here is, is this, effective leaders make the tough calls when necessary. Effective leaders, okay, and tough calls, they go hand in hand. Here it was, again, specifically firing a key staff member, but tough calls can pop up in all sorts of places in our lives. For example, in your personal life, maybe right now, some of you, you're in a relationship that's unhealthy, and you know that it needs to dissolve, and you're trying to figure out how to make that tough call. Another tough call 
parents of teenagers, if you have teenagers, there's tough calls at every turn. It's like our teenagers, I've said this before, the, around 12 or 13, some aliens come into our homes and remove their, their sweet personalities and replace them with a hormonal, maniacal, narcissistic individual. And they're not, that's not who, who are you? Who are you? It's like a bad sci-fi film in all of our homes. And they come back, I think, I don't know yet, I haven't experienced this, but I'm told they come back around what, age 19, 20, 21? I think maybe now it's around like 27. <laughs> um, but they need, teenagers need discipline. They just do. And they like to tell us that they don't. But it's so hard, like it's a tough call, because the discipline and the boundaries, and we need to get their attention. And it's like, well, how do you do that without erupting and making this even worse? But you know a tough call needs to be made when it comes to discipline, and so that's a tough call. You know, a lot of tough calls. One of our, our, our really um, influential positions here at Cornerstone are our community group leaders. And these are leaders of the highest order. They lead our, our small communities and people's homes, and we do Bible studies and community. And, and why it's hard to be a community group leader is there's this one phenomenon that we often find in group life, and that is usually one or two people fit this category, we call it colloquially, the EGR. You know what the EGR stands for? EGR stands for extra grace required. EGRs come into our groups and they dominate the group and they won't shut up and when it comes to the discussion they've got a ton of stuff to say and they don't, they don't know how to use their ears to listen or when it comes to the prayer time and you ask the group for prayer time and it becomes like a group counseling session for the EGR and no one else can say anything and everybody's exhausted and maybe you're thinking, oh, I know a couple of EGRs right now and if you're not thinking of anyone then other people are thinking that that's you, so just <laughs> FYI. Um, but, but our life group leaders have to somehow make a tough call and help our EGRs not murder and destroy our groups. Ooh, real talk. So tough calls happen all over the place. Hey, so a pull-aside meeting, a, you know, a, a very well-worded email, a coffee. Hey, how can I help you not be so annoying? Tough calls. Here's how you know a tough call is a tough call. Is when you know you have a decision to make, but you hesitate because there's a cost involved. It's gonna cost you something. You're gonna lose some chips. John Maxwell, he's the leadership guru basically of the universe. He says it this way, 95% of the decisions the CEO makes could be made reasonably by an intelligent eighth grader. Okay, good for you CEOs. However, but the CEO gets paid for the other 5% for making the tough calls. Tough calls are uncomfortable. Tough calls put us in a vulnerable position. Tough calls are, are, are complex. They're a quagmire and yet, Effective leaders make tough calls. Now here's sort of the ace up our sleeves as Christ followers. As Christ followers, as the Christ-centered leader, as the gospel-fueled leader, we have, we have special enablements for Jesus here, from Jesus. And we can be assured with God's help when we make the tough call, 
prayerfully, gracefully, breakthrough happens. Let this thought encourage you. The Christ-centered, gospel-fueled leader, you are only one tough call away from a breakthrough. We have to believe that in our life, in our teenagers' lives, at our work. My relationships can experience these places, the breakthroughs, when I risk and I ask for God's help and I'm fueled by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I risk and I do the right thing. This is what Nehemiah teaches us about leadership. Leaders make tough calls. Godly leaders are enabled by God to make tough calls. And when that happens, breakthrough is right on the other side of that. That's, that's really important. I want to talk more about tough calls, but apply this personally. Let's, let's, apply, let's apply this passage to the spiritual realm. Again, uh, using Tobiah as a metaphor. So, so Tobiah... Now, it doesn't just move literally into the side rooms in the temple in ancient Jerusalem, but he, he moves into the side rooms of our hearts. He occupies spaces that really should be occupied by Jesus. But there's a closet, there's a storage room, you know, there's a living room in there that we just allow a Tobiah to just come in and move in, and he brings all of his junk with him. And he just, he just moves in and pretends like he owns the place. So what do I mean by this? There's places in our hearts that we allow sin and spiritual neglect and lust and narcissism and materialism. I mean, just pick one. Pick one. And, and, and it's like, okay, Jesus, you have my heart, but there's, there's a storage room you know, over to the left that you actually don't occupy, that something else occupies, that a Tobiah. And... Uh, and, and here's, the, here's what this, the Christian teaching is about this, is that Tobias do not belong in our hearts. No Tobias should be occupying spaces where Jesus should be. Jesus, that's his square footage. That's his territory. He's bought and paid for it. He owns it. That's what the cross, the cost of the cross did, is, is Jesus said, okay, now I own your hearts. Now, we let Tobiah in, and there may be a price in having that happen, but it's never too late. It's never too late. Uh, Tobiah brings decay. He brings disintegration. But Jesus, he brings life, and he brings wholeness. And so my prayer is that each of us, uh, Jesus would give us the courage to face these things, and to evict Tobiah today, today. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out process. It can just be self-applying the tough call principle. And the best way to do this right away is just confess it. Just confess. Confession is, is God's hyssop, okay? Confession is, in a New Testament context, part of the purging and the cleansing process. And so what that means is you just, you tell your spouse, you tell someone in your community group that's not an EGR, you tell someone that's trusted in your circle that, oh, my, there's been something that's developed in my heart, I've got this, and I'm going to confess it, I'm going to just get it all out there, and it's going to flush it out. It's going to flush it out. So, so do that today. 
We're gonna just, just offer some prayer at the front of the room here at the Livermore campus. If you're at our other campuses and our other auditoriums, you can, you can have our prayer teams and access them at the front of those auditoriums. And our prayer teams are trained. It's like, no, this is a non-judgmental zone. We're there to come alongside. And basically, whatever you say, it's like attorney-client privilege, okay? It's just, it's just super secure, and then everybody flushes it, and we go out clean, all of us. That's the process. So do that today. Take a moment and pray with one of our prayer team members after service. Okay, what else happens here? It says that Tobiah was occupying the storage areas of the temple. Okay, that meant actually a ripple effect was happening in Israel. First of all, it meant that there was nowhere to store the tithes and the offerings of the people. Now, tithes back then were just more than cash. Like, we, we tithe here, we do it on our smartphones and things like that. But back then, tithes were grains and oils and wine and, ooh, wine, and grapes and figs. And this stuff kept the priests and their families fed so that the priests could perform the, the sacramental duties of is, Israelite worship. And this kept Israel spiritually healthy and vital. It was God's system that he set up from the days of Moses. But in this case, the priests could no longer eat, so they had to stop their worship, the work of the worship, and pastoring, and they had to go out and work in the fields. And this meant that nobody was worshiping. So when Nehemiah rolls into town after 10 years, no one was worshiping. Everybody was, was gone. There was no system where people were regularly offering sacrifices and praises. This was the ripple effect. This is exactly what Tobiah set out to do. And furthermore, when worship stopped, that meant that nobody was observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath was hugely important in the Israelite ecosystem of worship. It was like, started Friday night, ended Saturday night, and it was a day where everybody stopped working. That's what the word Sabbath means. It just means quit working. And so the Sabbath then became just like any other day. Uh, business, commerce, people were trading and buying and selling. It says, if you keep reading in the passage, that there were foreign people from, from the other cultures and societies that were coming in and moving into the temple grounds and setting up shops like it was a bazaar or a, a Saturday morning kind of flea market. And there was all kinds of commerce happening on the day when none of that was supposed to be happening. The, the temple had become... Basically, a den of thieves. Does that sound familiar to you? Right, Jesus, Jesus also did something very similar when the temple had become an area chiefly of commerce and not worship. What did he do? He cleaned house as well. You know why? Because he's an effective leader. And so we see uh, iterations of this throughout. But here, it was massive a massive deal breaker between God and his people. The Sabbath was sacred. The Sabbath was holy. The Sabbath was what set God's people apart from everybody else because the Sabbath was a day where you and your family, you stopped working, you pulled away, and you rested, and you trusted God that he would provide for you when you were not actually the one providing. So God would fill in the gap of that productivity with his miraculous provision. And it was a way to worship God. It was a way to trust God. And it was so vital because it was part of this dynamic spiritual relationship between God and his people. It was beautiful. And yet here, it had come to a grinding halt. So Nehemiah sees this. 
And once again, he just immediately deals with it. This isn't, we didn't read this. Look back down on your Bibles down at verse 17. We're gonna look at what Nehemiah did to, to rectify this situation. It says in verse 17, he says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us in the first place and on this city? And now, here you are again, stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Then in verse 22, it says, he fixed it, and then he commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, this part's cool. So the pastors on Sabbath day got to stand in front of the gates and close the gates, and they literally, it says, they fought people who were trying to get in and sell stuff. So the pastors were fighting. Oh, I love that. I wish we could do that again today, but that's Old Testament, now we're New Testament. And it says that the, the pastors were in charge of like protecting the sanctity of the worship space so that people wouldn't sell and buy in that space, but they would worship instead. So Nehemiah gets the people back on track and he reverses the ripple effect. He's the anti-Tobiah, which results in once again, God being praised and worshiped through the regular practice of rest. All right, how do we summarize this? Let's say it this way. Effective leadership prioritizes rest. Rest and leadership, these are two things that go together for the effective God-centered, gospel-powered leader. Now, this is of course counterintuitive to other teachings in this series. As we said, leaders are people who get things done. Nehemiah was a get things done kind of guy, wasn't he? And leaders get things done. Leadership is all about action and doing and accomplishing and building. But when you're resting, guess what? You're not, you know, you're, you're inactive. You're not building anything. You're not accomplishing anything. So it seems like the idea of rest and leadership are at odds with each other. And furthermore, we live in a culture that chronically overworks, going so far as to teach overwork as a valuable cultural normative. Every study that is out there shows that overwork is bad for us in just about every way possible, and yet our culture still continues to preach and teach overwork as just an everyday part of life. I was, I, was on the, I was on the Google, and I was um, looking at this. A recent study from CNN in the UK, that's England, showed that those who work 11-hour days are 250% more likely to become clinically depressed than those who limit and curtail their work days to eight hours. The study says that the prolonged exposure to work stress for these longer time periods in one day, it, it releases hormones that trigger depression and it builds up so much that our bodies can't slough them off. Our bodies can only handle a certain amount of this hormone until anxiety and depression kicks in and sets in and locks in. Now even though the science says to curtail our working, the culture ignores the science just like the culture ignores the Bible. Haha, ha, scientists, now you know how we pastors feel, okay? Doesn't feel very good, does it? But despite this, God's right. We gotta rest. And when we rest, we get more done by doing less. It's an act of faith to rely not on our jobs for our provision and our identity, but instead to rely on God to give us these things. Every time we rest, it's like a, a worship song. 
And some of us aren't worshiping as much as we should because we're overworking. For the go-getters in our midst, we have some go-getters. Go-getters have like this little energizer bunny and it's just like this hamster inside of you that just won't, it's always, it's always going. This is difficult. Sabbath is difficult. The, the, the New Testament application of Sabbath is dif- difficult. Practicing regular rest for the go-getter can actually be the hardest work that you do because you're resisting your internal inclinations to make it happen. And yet Nehemiah teaches us that rest is the key to accomplish everything that God wants to do in and through you. So my question is, are you resting? Are you resting? All right, how do you rest? There's, there's many ways you can rest. Again, the New Testament application broadens this out for us. We rest, for example, when we get enough sleep. Only 3% of the population oversleeps. Most of us are undersleeped. Is that a word? You, you were here when it happened. We, we made up a new word. Most of us are undersleeped. Your brain, a TED talk I watched, your brain doesn't have blood vessels in it, which is how most of your cells and other systems in your body, that's how the waste gets removed, through the blood vessels. But instead, your brain has an enzyme that it produces that carries away the waste. And guess when that enzyme is produced? Only in your sleep. Which is why when you haven't slept enough, your minds feel clunky and clouded. All the moms be like, amen. That's one way, we just sleep, get enough sleep. Another way is we rest when we pull away from our work. This is difficult. I know a lot of us are in highly uh, performance-oriented corporate jobs. And so to, to put away the phone and the access to the emails and that, that, that barrage you all the time, but, but, but effective leaders carve out time and space away from the mental exercise of your work. We also rest when we take out time with God and, and we do devotions and we read our Bibles and we have prayer times and times of solitude. We also rest when we go on vacation, except when the kids come with us. That's not rest. That's what we call grueling work in another locale, all right? <clears throat> Christy and I, we only call it vacation when it's just the two of us, you know what I'm saying? We call it a trip when the kids come with us. That's what that is, that's a trip. That ain't restful. Oh my goodness. It helps to have a little bit of honesty, doesn't it? All right. Trust God when it comes to the outcomes of your leadership by resting. That's effective leadership. All right, well, we're pretty much done, but there's one last thought that I wanna leave us with as we close out not only this series, but this beautiful book. Let's look at how Nehemiah ends If you look at the very bottom of chapter 13, Nehemiah closes with a prayer. And here's the prayer. Remember me in favor, my God. This is a simple prayer. This is a beautiful prayer. Simple, effective. It embodies Nehemiah's life. Just remember me in favor, God. You know, the book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah praying, and it ends with Nehemiah praying. Now, the word favor, this is just a beautiful word. It's a complex word in the Hebrew. There's a lot of dimensions to it. It gets translated into English 
throughout our Old Testament in a lot of different ways. There's words such as favor here or goodness, kindness. It also gets translated prosperity and grace. This is ultimately Nehemiah's final lesson for us, and that's effective leaders rely on God's favor. There's many leadership skills that we've covered that we can develop. There's techniques. There's ways in which we can conduct our lives and prepare ourselves so that our leadership influence, our leadership quotient grows. And we can use that influence for God's glory. We can use that not just to further our careers and to advance in our corporate structures, but we can influence those around us to make a real connection with a loving Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of effective leadership in terms of a biblical perspective, is, to, is that our influence, the aroma of our life, the magnetism of our life would not draw people to ourselves, rather it would draw people to Jesus, and that they would have a, a, a life-changing, a life-transforming interaction. For the godly leader, our effectiveness isn't contingent upon our abilities as leaders. Rather, as Nehemiah teaches us, the wind in our sails, the protein in our bodies spiritually, the jet fuel that propels us into effective leadership is God's grace on our life. It's when God looks at us and he smiles, and he clears obstacles, and he does his good secret work around us, and he gives us favor, he opens doors that we would never be able to open on our own through our own skills and, and our own degrees and certifications and, 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 and impressing our bosses, that God will open up doors for us, and that's all God's favor, that's God's grace. And God's grace, friends, means in a New Testament context, a very powerful thing. It means that God loves us and he's kind to us in a way that is unmerited. We didn't merit God's love. We didn't earn God's love. We didn't earn God's kindness and his goodness in our life. Rather, God looks upon us through the lens of the love of Jesus Christ and he just bestows it upon us. He just lavishes it upon us. He just gives it to us. And he says, you know what? All the things that you're doing, all the good work that you're doing in your own strength couldn't add up to one fractional sense of the grace that I'm just going to give you for free. And that comes through Jesus. That comes through the gospel. That comes when we sit at the foot of the cross and we embrace the cross. And we stand every day at our works, but we also stand in the shadow of the cross, remembering that without God's grace and his favor in our life, we could do nothing. That's the truth of effective leadership. Godly leaders understand that it's not just technique. Oh, if it were only that easy. Godly leaders say, oh, no, no, there's a much more powerful force at work and play. And it's the mighty, sovereign, loving hand of God who is giving me unmerited favor in my life. Now, for those of you joining us across the East Bay, I'm going to say goodbye to you now. And I'm gonna close out today's services at all of our other campuses in Brentwood, in Walnut Creek, in Danville, and in Hayward. Your campus pastors will be offering a prayer of blessing to each of you as we are sent out from our auditoriums into the East Bay and everywhere that God will take us. Everything that we've learned these past 11 weeks, we wanna hide them in our hearts. Most of all, the lesson of God's favor. So may God be with you as he sends you with his grace and his favor.